it reminds me of the broken battlements of my own castle in Transylvania. Oh, Lucy, you're so romantic. Love all you like. I think he's fascinating. Castle. Dracula. Transylvania. There are far worse things waiting man than death. Hi again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and it is October once again. Ah. Uh, the spooky season. Yes. <laughs> As usual, we, we've tried to find some things for October that are going to get us into the, the Halloween mood, uh, since that is such a fun time. And uh, by the way, if you like Halloween podcasts, we'll include a link in the show notes to the, the evergreen or, or ever black and orange episodes from previous years that are out there, all of our Halloween uh, shows. But and, and this isn't to take just one. You can grab a full handful of this one we put them in a bucket just grab as many as you want to have this one we'll, we'll keep that's right it. and they're full they're not fun size exactly full podcasts but this uh for, for this uh first halloween episode of 2021 we decided to go back to some of the the origins of the kind of the horror movie world in the united states at least it's the classics yes and so we're going back to 1931 universal's dracula I've heard of this. I've known of this. I've never seen it before now. And it's one of those like, of course, everyone references this. This is how you put this onto film. It, it set a precedent alongside the book itself. And this is one of those things, one of those movies that the movie is known. The movie is understood. The movie is referenced by far more people than have actually sat down and watched the movie. Oh, yeah. Half the time you're referencing someone else's reference before you're actually referencing the movie because it just propagated through media like that. Because it really did define certain things about horror movies or monster movies in the U.S. and and in what that genre looks and feels and sounds like. But it also absolutely established so much of the, the lore of vampires. Oh, in, Yeah. In modern English-speaking culture. I'm trying to figure out if I want to talk, tackle this as a movie or as a narrative first. And I'm seeing those as two different things. I think I want to start with the movie just because the visuals of this for being a black and white film struck me first. Yeah, I, I think that we want to focus on this uh, as a movie. I don't think we need to arm ourselves with paper balls or anything. But I think we will... We'll, Focus on it as a movie, but we'll certainly, if not before, we'll talk about it during the final questions uh, about the, the legacy of this movie and what, uh, what came of it. I'm not sure you might want a paper ball by the end if I get into this too much. Just <laughs> All right, I'll, uh, I'll keep one handy. Oh, good. And if you want to know what that's about, go back and listen to our uh, podcast about The Razor's Edge. <laughs> uh, but... 
as a movie, the one of the first things I noticed is that this really helped establish the idea of that like moving in tracking shot for horror, I think. Because that first time you run into uh, they do a long setup with a uh, guy going to town, all of that, and yeah, da da. Oh, you're going to the castle? How could you? Uh, it's when we see Dracula rising for the first time, and it is this so smooth a camera pull is tracking into the coffin and around a corner slightly just to center this a little low. So that the lid moves up into the center frame as it goes. And I'm like, oh, dang, this camera is going to be amazing. It it feels so modern. This is 1931. And yet all the, that moving camera work makes it feel so dynamic, makes it feel so, so modern. This was directed by Todd Browning, but Carl Friend was the cinematographer. And his his stamp on this is so strong, the way he handled the camera, the way he lined up those shots and moved them around. It, you compare this, say, to a movie like The Thin Man, which came out three years later, and The Thin Man looks and feels so static in so many ways compared to some of the scenes in Dracula. Now, to be honest, I've got to say, some of those amazing scenes in Dracula— they look amazing compared to other scenes in Dracula, which do feel very stagey and very static. Oh, yeah. But even for their time, I think they were well-blocked scenes and well-shot scenes, but compared to ones like the scene you were describing with that initial dolly in on the uh, uh, the coffin, they, they seem static compared to those. The IWMP podcast does not promote drinking games specifically, but if you were to play one with the original dracula film and take a shot every time you saw a pullback set piece reused for people walking up and down usually flights of stairs because they do that more than once you might actually feel a little bit more like nick and nora charles than you'd expect (laughs) to those are a little heavy-handed but they're effective when they're using them and so many of those same kinds of cinematography, definitely the same kinds of lighting, same kinds of sound, they became a hallmark of of the horror movie or the monster movie, uh, and most of which, or mo- the most memorable of which, were produced by Universal, like Frankenstein came out later this year, because, in part because of the success of uh, Dracula. Oh, you want some wonderful lighting. Some of the the street lighting moments, where there's shadows that characters can step out of, or the shot reverse shot where the reverse has the silhouette of someone through curtains that they do, especially towards the end. It's really well done. The lighting work is impressive. And it's a, this is an old black and white film that talks about color more than once. And it's one of those where the lighting and the cinematography is so good, it never is jarring for them to reference a depth of sense you cannot get from the medium yet. When they describe the glowing red eyes of something, it took me seeing that scene a second time when we went back for some stuff to realize there is nothing red I've seen on this (laughs) screen for the last hour. 
but it is lit so well, I pictured it in scene perfectly. They evoke color in a black and white movie. It is impressive. And that requires camera and lights to be on point. There is plenty of appearing in a doorway. There's plenty of bats on strings, but everything else is played so exactly on point that the moments where that catches you off guard are and you like are broken of the illusion of it are 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 tiny and quickly brushed away. And you mentioned the some of the the practical effects work, let's call it, with the bat puppets and such it looks kind almost a little bit jokey today but and it looks especially jokey if you only see like clips taken out of context in the context of the movie once you're immersed in it they work and they work partly because of the editing the you see the bat fluttering around by the window then you pan over to see the the woman the impending victim uh, asleep. Then they move back, and Bill Lugosi is standing there. It's a super easy, cheap transition, but everything about the atmosphere they've created, everything about Lugosi's presence, makes it work. Absolutely. Uh, okay, in terms of Bill Lugosi's performance, I will be very, very frank. I know the the stare. The look he gives is this classic thing, this powerful moment in cinema. The first time they show it on the screen, I chuckled because it looked like it was going to turn into a fragrance ad in my mind. <laughs> Something about the black and white and this stare into the camera. And I just like, there's supposed to be like someone whispering like, Dracula from Transylvania. And it's, it's like you're supposed to get that sort of effect. It, other things using this kind of powerful come-to-me-draw effect has ruined it in retrospect for me, but and, it's effective. And that's exactly right. There's a reason why they use that kind of imagery and that kind of feel in everything from horror movies to fragrance ads. He established the the otherworldly sexy hypnotist character. And made it so compelling that it's something you can reference, even if you don't know at this point that you're referencing it. I think those really those fragrance ads really do go back to Bela Lugosi as Dracula. It's it's the thing that uh, in Disney's Tangled they classified as the smolder. Yes, <laughs> he is absolutely doing that for so much of this film. Oh, was that in Tangled? Yeah. Oh, because I they had that in uh, um, Jumanji as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, we've we've kind of jumped ahead from where we usually are. We jumped right into talking about the the cinematography and the direction and and onto the characters. Um, and I think that's good. I think I want to keep going with that, so I might cut out this digression. Uh, and we can talk later about the story and the plot because the story and the plot is not really why you watch this movie necessarily. Not quite, yeah. But part of what makes Lugosi's Dracula work so well is the fact that. In addition to his look, he had a great look. He was familiar with the character, having played it on Broadway. But the fact that he did not speak English as his first language. For much of his acting career, he had learned his English language roles phonetically. He gave Dracula a way of speaking 
which made it sound and feel as if this is someone who is not accustomed to speaking to people. There's something a little stilted, but overly formal and overly polite, and that makes sense for a character who is 500 years old and rarely talks to other humans, or is no longer human himself. It's a little bit weird and off-putting, and we, I think we can have that reaction as the audience, and the supporting actors also really help reinforce that with the the reaction that uh, Mr. Renfield has when he first meets Dracula in his castle, the way Seward and his daughter Mina and Mina's fiance John and their friend Lucy, the reaction that they have at the uh, the theater when they first meet Dracula, they chuckle and exchange this get, get a load of this guy kind of glance, and yet they still find him compelling. I never expected the 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 classic original Dracula movie to in, to have a scene where someone does an impression of Dracula. Literally, she sits there on the bed right after the theater scene and does an impression of him and I'm like that feels like the sort of referential joke nowadays you make <laughs> trying to call back to this. You're doing it in here in world. I'm I'm blown away. That works. He he set a style in terms of this this cape and this presence and the postures and the voice and it all turned into this physical manifestation that had a little bit more rigidity in its style than the book did the book's version of dracula could get a little more flexible for for adaptation later. It had something to it, but Bela Lugosi's was a, a more easy to grab onto and run with kind of interpretation in yeah. that sense. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing because it meant that people were able to get into the story without wading through as much to that extent. They were able to see, oh, he is commanding a room right away and you don't have to have that explained to you. Yeah, he's a he's a less nuanced character than in the novel, and yet in this original 31 movie, he's not a caricature. He kind of is turned into a caricature over the decades, but instead he is this pared down, this iconic version of, of Dracula, and that's one of the reasons why that imagery persists so much. And you're right about that one scene where after they meet the Count and they're back home, uh, Mina and Lucy are talking about this guy and it's a kind of a scene like the the famous line from jack sparrow you know you you may think i'm ridiculous but you have heard of me you're still talking about me i made an impression and mina is kind of making fun of of this weird european guy and lucy's listening but she's really not on the same wavelength as as mina Lucy found him far more compelling in far more ways. And Mina is telling Lucy, you know, you don't need weirdos like that. Find somebody normal. And it becomes very clear, Lucy does not want normal. No. She has finally encountered somebody she finds interesting. And that, of course, leads Lucy to a horrible fate later in the story. But you can see the attraction is there. Whereas for Mina, there is a, a fascination 
but it's not the same kind of fascination that Lucy has. And yet, clearly, Dracula is more driven, more finds Mina more compelling than, than Lucy was. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird how that plays out where they It's not a love triangle, but it is a chase triangle. It's kind of got that like who's interested in who and who is wary of who. There's there's a lot of tension in that. Yep. And it it is kind of a classic triangle formula. You're right. There's the two best friends, new guy comes to town. One of the best friends likes the new guy, but the new guy likes the other best friend. Yeah. It just goes even more more wrong than that formula usually does. Exactly. Oh. And then as a point of a, the other, I guess, overlapping triangle is uh, John Harkness. Oh, yeah. Who is Mina's fiancé. And he is sort of the definition of normal in this uh, story. He is just the, the, the template for what things are supposed to be like and who Mina is supposed to go off and marry. He never is quite the action hero, partly because he is overwhelmed by other characters who are so much more the action hero. Oh, you want to talk about the action hero, though? We have Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. Awesome, awesome character. Oh, goodness. My favorite depiction of Van Helsing. I almost might be with you. He is... Okay, this feel... Mm. This is where you need the paper ball, because I need to tr- to digress. In the book, Van Helsing is this doctor character, but he kind of is always... I know a little bit more than I'm saying, as he hunts these things a little more privately and secretly. But instead, in this, it's just like, we did our medical tests, and you know what, guys? It's this. It's like, <laughs> it can't be that. You're crazy. Who has tenure? <laughs> I'm telling you it's this. Go with me. And when, it's, and when it's proven to be this, there's a couple of brilliant moments of just like, pause, and you can almost hear, I told you so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you don't believe me it's a vampire? Maybe she'd get a, an opinion from somebody else who knows more about vampires. But there aren't any. any. I am Van Helsing. Sing. He's this slightly manic, mad scientist character who is, he gives off this air of being crazy enough to believe in this stuff. And therefore believes in this stuff to know everything there is to know about this stuff. This is a guy who feels like if he was just a decade or so younger, he would have tried to punch Dracula. That his <laughs> old MO would have been much more quickly to fisticuffs and shotgun. <laughs> Especially when there's someone else who tries to shoot off this big bat that keeps coming around with a shotgun. And the sentence of just like, you won't be able to kill it with that. Which has such an implied, I would know, I've tried that before. Oh, that's interesting. I I took it more as the, he has spent decades and decades studying these things, and finally, for the first time, is coming up against one in real life. Oh, I took it that he's run into it. Oh, interesting. I took it because he's got the cross on him ready in his breast pocket. He's there checking mirrors. He's there double-checking times and watching for signs and symptoms so quickly, it felt practiced, not purely research, but it felt actionable in his performance to me. And it made it feel more like the one last job action hero versus <laughs> the bigger threat that showed up. Like, like, oh yeah, I've taken down plenty, but you are actually one that's interesting enough for me to not get bored doing this again. 
Oh, that's interesting. I, I thought it was much more the finally the moment I've been training for. Ah. Either one works. I Either like them one. both. I'll have to watch it again with that in mind. But Dracula drove the first half of the movie for me. Van Helsing drives the second. He is just like, we don't have time to waste. Get up the stairs. Like, <laughs> there's entire chunks of the book narrative that I feel get chopped out by this version of Van Helsing just telling people to be quiet and follow me. And do this thing, dang it. It's, it's, it's brilliant, and I love that. And he did have access to a very uh, plentiful supply of Wolfsbane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we couldn't get Wolfsbane pizza tonight. We did eat garlic pizza in preparation just to keep ourselves safe while watching this. Well, was it a bad idea to tell the delivery guy he could come inside to put it down? <laughs> uh, my main mistake there. Actually, that's one of the things that aren't rules of vampires in this one. Yeah, There's no, a couple of things. Uh, the sunlight is there. Garlic is never mentioned, but wolfsbane is a, is a preventative for them. Mm -hmm. How you turn a vampire is there. Hypnotism and control is part of their stuff. But there's nothing about whether or not they're allowed to enter a building with permission. I don't know if what would happen to them in sunlight is explained. They just don't like it and they get away. This gives the impression of vampires and vampirism being governed largely by spiritual and psychological factors. So much later vampire lore expansions and depictions in movies and such, they make it very, very physical, like a vampire touches a crucifix, they start burning and things like that. And here it is so much more... Like I say, the psychological and the spiritual, things that remind them of their own horrible condition, are the most repulsive to them, such that they can't even stand up to them. Things like a cross, things like a mirror. And we, very early on in his first conversation with Dr. Seward and Mina and John, Dracula is talking about the fact that to be truly dead must be magnificent. And there are far worse things than death that can await man. Oh, yeah. but there's also something, there is something in that, that purely psychological, and not purely, but that more psychological interpretation that allows this version of Dracula to have a little bit more normal life to him. The first time we run into Dracula at all, story-wise, he's, <laughs> he's signing the lease on his new place in a way that just felt kind of odd and out of sorts to the 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 more terrifying and demonic -y portrayals later and there's an entire bit after the boats crashed and they wind up in England where he's just touring around London getting to go out during nightlife which I don't take I take it he didn't have before but there's things going on when he's awake now and Maybe it's just me. There was something very much the check back in at the end of the House Hunters episode to see how the family's doing having moved into the place they chose <laughs> about this little, like, Dracula in his hat and cape going to the theater. Like, it's Crypt Hunters International. Exactly. It's Crypt Hunters <laughs> International. Absolutely. That's kind of the feeling. And it's like, this is a Dracula with a social life. Okay. This is a good reason to actually take a look at the storyline or the plot of this movie, such as it is, because it's a very, I think, a very sketchy, very outline-y sort of plot. 
But as you say, um, a, Dracula has a lawyer from England come to his castle in Transylvania with the lease papers and, and moving documents because he's taking a lease on an old abbey in England and is planning to move there. They never really give us any clear explanation as to why or what Dracula's plan is. What is his motivation through this entire story? Essentially, Dracula moves to England. As part of the process, he hypnotizes and enslaves uh, the lawyer. In this, in this uh, movie version, Mr. Renfield is the lawyer who comes to meet him in Transylvania. And by the time they're heading to England, he's fully crazy and eating bugs and in Dracula's thrall. So Dracula gets to England, settles in in his abbey, goes about his, his life attacking the occasional young woman to drink her blood to sustain himself, and going to musical performances. And he meets Dr. Seward and his daughter Mina and her friend Lucy and Mina's fiancé John. And the doctor, Seward, runs the sanitarium next to the grounds of the abbey that uh, Dracula has leased. And next thing you know, Dracula has attacked Lucy and turned her into a vampire and has attacked Mina to, um, to turn her into a vampire, though that apparently takes longer, maybe because Mina was more resistant to it. And eventually the good guys figure out what's happening and they stop him. But did, did Dracula decide to move to London just because Transylvania was too boring after 500 years? He wanted to be somewhere where there, A, were more people, B, there were more people who weren't scared and or smart enough to stay away from his place at night. I don't know. I don't know. What was the motive? And, and then when he got there, he happened to find some young ladies he was attracted to? It's kind not of- Not much of a story. It's not much of a story. and. There, there's, there's plenty of bits that are still, like, vestigial parts from the book that show up that never go... And this is all better explained in the book. This right? is all better explained from the book. This is where you need the paper ball. <laughs> uh, the book actually deals with the fact that he just left three vampire ladies running the old place back in Transylvania, and it completely cuts out the running back there and the group that gathers, like, a, <laughs> like the final uh, party going to the boss dungeon literally in this case who sweeps through the castle to get rid of him no he dies in england this time <laughs> that's a very different dracula story you know thinking about it there is a link to our prior episode because we're starting with uh, a member of the nobility leaving one castle to move into another um but instead of the house atreides leaving caladan and moving to arrakis we've got the house dracula leaving transylvania to move to the abbey in england Oh, the worms of the night. What beautiful spice they make. <laughs> <laughs> See, oh, that's a, that's a crossover thread. terrifying me. This is a, the whole podcast, a continuous thread. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, but yeah, it's... <sighs> so the movie, that that's enough of a gap in the movie to, to kind of agitate me or irritate me a little bit as I watch it is... Well, this is all really cool, but why is it happening? In some ways, there's almost something Highlander faded encounter-like. Mm. There's almost something like, I've got to be here now. 
And why is it I had to move in next to the guy that knows how to fight me? Yeah, and, and there, there's something a little bit like that. Who is himself, I believe, not English, but happens to be in England just at the time that uh, Dracula shows up. Exactly. An immortal guy is drawn to a place to fight the one guy that can kill him. That's Highlander. We're running back into another thing, another callback for the podcast. <laughs> it's that sort of is the only explanation we might be able to glean as to why he's here. But that um, those gaps in the uh, in the storyline, that, that that missing motivation, it it quickly leaves me because I'm just wrapped up in these scenes and and some of these specific shots and the way they introduce some of the key parts of the vampire lore with the mirrors and such. Those turn some of those very stagey scenes into so much more dramatic scenes. Yeah, the mirror scene goes on a little long, but the response at the very end, where it's like, hey, uh, uh, Count Dracula, you want to come take a look at this with me? I noticed something really weird holds up mirror and just the, nope, smacks <laughs> it out of his hand onto the floor. Just And one scene, I suppose we should have mentioned spoilers at the beginning, but I think that's a given when we're talking about movies. That one scene, you talk about things that could go on for a little while, one scene that I could understand a criticism of it going on too long, but I wouldn't take away a second, is that confrontation between Dracula and Van Helsing, where Van Helsing has kept Dracula at, uh, is explaining to Dracula, I know who you are, what you are, all about you, and Dracula is trying to use his hypnotic or mental compulsion powers against Van Helsing. And there's this long standoff in which it's not at all clear whether he's going to succeed or not. Is Van Helsing going to succumb to this? And it looks more and more like he's going to until finally he finds the will to resist Dracula, which surprises and impresses Dracula himself. Dracula is by no means an unemotional character. He can be surprised. He can be impressed. He can be angry. Uh, and I just love that scene because it shows the strength of these characters and it shows that yeah, as big and imposing and impressive as Dracula is, it's his movie. He his his value is proven by the fact that he's given an adversary who is just as powerful. Oh yeah, Dra it, it, it's it's the it's the that that tug of war there is so perfect, and it, it sets up both of them. I almost wish that scene was earlier when they first meet, just to be able to establish that that fight a little better, but it requires them to have revealed themselves to each other in terms of what their skills are. So I understand why it's where it is. And, and I, I like the fact that it, it is where it is because we have seen Van Helsing prove himself in a number of other ways when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to observation of, of Dracula and confirming his, his suspicions. And this is like the final test. He's gotten past several hurdles. He knows everything he needs to know. He can observe everything he needs to observe. When it just comes down to will versus will, is he going to have what it takes to survive this as well? And I love the fact that it's, you know, come to me, take, tries to fight, goes to take a step, resists finally. Dracula then takes a step towards him. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of a little admission of defeat by Dracula. Yeah. I, I also admit, though, with me and my 
my my love of anime and uh my pop culture references the uh oh you're approaching me scene went through my head for anyone who knows anything <laughs> from jojo's bizarre adventure yeah guy walks towards a vampire yeah this i know this scene but this is really well done mm-hmm. i think the only other characters we haven't mentioned we see only other speaking characters we haven't mentioned are the two people who, who live and work in the the seward household and I'm still not sure I understand the Seward household. Apparently, he he and his daughter live there, but it's also a hospital for the mentally ill. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of division between the two. And they do remark about the fact that Renfield is able to escape his room uh, with remarkable frequency. But he just wanders into their living quarters whenever he needs to cause trouble. You You half expect the... The sitcom audience cheer and and laughter applause when a beloved secondary character walks in on set. Every time Renfield appears, he like pops up in a co- corner in a in a in a doorframe, and I just expect like, "Yay, Renfield!" Yay! And it dies down, and he gets to say his lines because he gets that sort of intro. But I take it there's like two buildings on property, I guess, and yeah. they converted like what had been a. Or like uh, the second building into the actual hospital facility, but like this guy is crazy and able to bend steel bars because he's just gaining supernatural servant strength. So, and part of this household, then the household slash hospital, there's an orderly, there's a nurse, and there's a maid, and I think they are there because I believe that. Probably up until about 1962, there was some kind of law where anything that took place in England, any movie that took place that was set in England, had to have at least two working class characters who would give comic relief. That's the only reason why I can explain why the characters just like this show up in so many movies. Oh, Absolutely. You know that in a modern version, they would get way more screen time <laughs> because there's just, they are the right kind of levity for this because it is like outsiders commentating on how weird this looks from, from the rest of the building. Well, I think that if this were a modern version, that within six months after its premiere, there would have been a Saturday morning cartoon that features Van Helsing, Renfield, and the three of them running around hunting monsters. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Renfield kind of even takes the uh the classic uh, mascot character role in some terrifying. <laughs> He'd be the the slimer. Oh yeah. To their uh to their ghostbusters. Rot row relsing. <laughs> the Scooby Doo. <laughs> exactly. He's the Scooby. He's the Scooby oh, of this team. Very of much that's more unpleasant prob- kind of Scooby snack. Though. That's a problem, though. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's where it goes. Yeah. Well, I think we've probably tipped our hand somewhat, but but maybe it's time to move on to some final questions. I think so. All right. Well, it's uh, it's a classic movie. Screen or no screen? Ah, uh, I'm gonna say screen. I'm gonna say screen. It's great. It's got. It's got really good cinematography. It's got a, a pared down, but a pretty compelling in terms of atmosphere version of the Dracula story. And it's quintessential. 
there is so much in this that is just excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say screen as well. It, it's, it's so fundamental. It's just good in its own right. It's still, for, for any of the flaws we might have uh, recognized in it, it's still an enjoyable movie. It's, it's still a compelling movie for its whole running time. And, and for me, it is certainly a fundamental movie in terms of introducing me to this kind of movie. And I didn't really talk much about that, uh, as I often do about what, what impact these movies had on me. This was one of those, uh, as when I was little, this was the genre of monster movies. Mm. And last year around Halloween, when we watched uh, Kolshak the Night Stalker, I was talking about the fact that my big brother, Paul, loved that kind of stuff, and I got into it because it was something I could watch with him. Uh, the same was true of Universal monster movies. And that's I thought of these as monster movies, which is as distinct from Godzilla movies, which were giant monsters. Whether or not they had Godzilla in them, they were Godzilla movies. These were monster movies, and that included Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, the Mummy, and... Uh, and these are the kind of things that would show up on a local TV uh, Saturday night every couple of months. And my, my brother, Paul, always knew when these were going to be on. And we always pulled out the black and white TV, the second TV, because my parents didn't want to watch this, and, and watch these. So that ritual of watching these movies was important. But also, it allowed me to watch very, very young all of these movies that then led to so many of the things that I saw later on and that were produced later on. That makes so that sense. was fun. I always remember those times when I watched these movies, but also having watched them then prepared me for so much more. You kind of got things in the order of influence in that sense. Kind of. That works. That's I, I, kind of fixing the fact that a lot of people don't get that in the, don't get to know the thing that they're referencing back to is part of why I think that screen is important here. Yep. Uh, and I would say that of the the local TV airings of those movies, Dracula was kind of the, the least frequent in the rotation, partly because it was so much older, a little more primitive in terms of movie making. It didn't have as much visual excitement as, say, Frankenstein. But they did still show it often enough that I got to see it a couple of times. I, I get what you mean. I almost wish that there was like a second pass that they could have taken on this film, that they could have gotten a chance just to get it a little tighter so that it fit with those other things. And this is a transition into a completely separate thing. Before we get to talk about our other ideas of how to change this, we have got to mention something, which I learned about watching this and you'd heard about and we've got to go look for now dad and that's the spanish language version of dracula from the exact same time because that is just wild and interesting i've gotten to see clips of it now and oh my goodness on the uh, the dvd that we were watching tonight uh was a, a featurette called the road to dracula about the making of this movie and they revealed the fact they talked about the fact that simultaneously produced with this was a Spanish language version of Dracula using a translation of essentially the same script using the exact same sets uh, made for the Spanish speaking market. And you're this, I had heard of that. I had heard positive things about that. Having seen this featurette, I understand why it is probably better than this English language version. And I really do want to see it. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. Just the tracking shots I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, they go so much deeper in this other one. Just seeing that, I have got to see this because it's the second pass cleanup that this movie needed, and I can't not think that to some extent if I'm thinking about anything else of what this movie could become because of what that showed me as possible even then. When we do get our hands on that, we'll have to watch that and and talk about it, post that up uh, on Patreon. Oh, absolutely. But I'm looking forward to that. So, the question becomes then, our classic three. <laughs> Which sound a little stranger now, revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Oh, yes. <laughs> so what do you want to do with Dracula? Uh, <laughs> well, revive is difficult. Dracula as a franchise character property entity keeps coming back in media constantly so this would be a fresh interpretation of i'm not sure if i'm saying the book i think i'm saying the pared down version for the film well you're talking about now revive or reboot i'm not sure because revive there were several movies made by universal that were ostensibly sequels to this I, know. I think the only other time that Bela Lugosi played Dracula for Universal was in an Abbott and Costello movie. Yes. But there were uh, um, uh, other movies really about the same character produced by Universal, which seem to meet our definition of revive. So there have been revivals of this movie. Oh, yeah. So this one kind of already got that treatment, I guess I'm saying. I guess you'd have to... That's the question. If you were to do a revival, do you include those? Do you not? This is the start of a franchise in that sense. Do you follow off of that? That's one option. Not sure. Do you make a brand new revival as a new branching off of this one? Which I'm not sure of. So I guess I'm ruling that out and going with reboot or rest in peace for myself. I could maybe see a revival of this being interesting. Depending on what you do with the vampire lore, the idea of, you know, with the death of Dracula, spoiler, Dracula is staked at the end of this movie, with the, the death of Dracula, does that mean there is another world's most powerful vampire out there somewhere? And has he been biding his time for 90 years? Do we have this, this version of Van Helsing in his younger days doing the research? Oh, uh, uh. Uh, a prequel revival. That's interesting. Those I mean, are both there, there. there have been other movies about Van Helsing. Like, I think there was one with Hugh Jackman as a Van Helsing action hero. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it. I've heard mixed things about it. I might see it at yeah. some point. But there's, there's options there. There are. A reboot, like you say, I guess that would be another adaptation. And we've seen those. There was the 1979 Frank Langella version, which was also adapted from a Broadway production. Absolutely. Uh, there was the uh, the Bram Stoker's Dracula in the 90s. Yeah, it, it, it gets those regularly enough. So in some ways, it's hard to say that one either, because that's already constantly happening. The book itself generates new things, and the influence it has had means that there's plenty of other stories that you can see as a a reboot with enough tangent to them, because they pull from that that core source for these monster films in that sense. Because of that, I think I am most tempted to say rest in peace. I think I am too. Yeah. Let this 1931 universal pictures, Dracula and the few sequels that it spawned 
rest in peace as a body of work. And I can say that with some confidence and and peace because I know there will be more vampire stories. There will be more adaptations of Dracula. They don't have to be seen as or designed as reboots or revivals of this classic Dracula movie. We can let this one rest in peace, knowing that it will rise again. <laughs> so there we have it. There we have it. That's a good kickoff to the Halloween season for oh, 2021. Absolutely. This is... I'm excited if this is what our month theme is, because <laughs> this is this is a, a set I'm hoping we're going to be able to reference back for a lot of things, even outside of the spooky months. I think so. And that's one of the nice things about going back to really early movies like this is we can then talk about how they influenced things that came later. But uh, but we'll, we'll be back in two weeks with another Halloween-themed episode. It'll, it'll still be October. Always looking forward to that. So in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me most places under the name by Matthew Porter. So by Matthew Porter on Twitter, uh, by, by Matthew Porter on YouTube, uh, by Matthew Porter dot com is where you'll find links to um, anything that you might need to know. And Ian, where can people find you? Well, you can you can tell your driver to take that digital stagecoach up to the castle at Item Crafting on Twitter or Item Crafting Live at Twitch. I go by item crafting in most places, even itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter as IMMPcast. You can also find us online at immproject.com. That's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes, including those old Halloween episodes. And you'll also find a link to our shop, a link to our Patreon, where we really appreciate anybody who can support us there. And you do get some extra uh, content for that. And uh, you'll also find us as IMMP Podcast on YouTube, and we'll have links to that on that uh, website as well. And if you do reach out to us either on Twitter or the contact page on that website, we'd really like to know what you think. And let us know if uh, it's okay for us to read your email on the air. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.